Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. And within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've lost about 100 pounds. I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of our experiences thriving for years in nutritional ketosis. Yeah, and reversing diabetes. Woohoo! And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? I'm going to drag and drop a big no on that <laughs> statement. But we do read the effing manuals, and we have done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we share studies that we've found in the show notes. You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. We love mm. to cook, and we oh, love yeah. to eat. Yep. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. Mm-hmm. So let's start podcast number 123, Joe Kosterich, low-carb physician. Heard you say you're due. So, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week's show? Let's see. Last week's show was Sarah Halberg reversing diabetes, and the only apology I had was for my lack of voice. <laughs> <laughs> you sound better now. Yeah, I feel a lot better. I, I, I've, the, the, the flu's moved over past me, and now I've just got like a bit of a residual sort of uh, cough every now and then, but I'm good. Wow, I can't tell you how relieved I am that you wouldn't be bringing the, the typhoid Mary to uh, Keto Fest. <laughs> I'm bringing the pestilence yes. straight from the straight from Gary Taubes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you said it might have been Ivan and Dimitri having the vodka on the on the plane next to you. It, two Russians, yeah, well, they were doing a bit of coughing, but no, I I, I claim now that it was Gary Taubes. <laughs> I, I had a better quality of cold. <laughs> well, he won't be at Keto Fest. He's he's one of the only rock stars that won't be at Keto Fest, but. Um... So, let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is, Richard. Yeah. So, a ketogenic diet is a diet that puts you in a state of nutritional ketosis. That simply means you don't eat carbohydrates or you eat very little and your body makes glucose. And when it makes glucose, it also makes ketones. Mm. And ketones uh, and fat is how our bodies run when we're on a ketogenic diet. Yeah. Yeah. So, a surefire way to get into nutritional ketosis is to eat 20 grams of carbs or less per day. Uh, mostly yeah. from green leafy vegetables, maybe a little cream, mm-hmm. some nuts. Uh, your protein is moderate. That's one to one and a half grams of protein every day for every kilogram of lean body mass you have. Mm-hmm. And then all the other energy, as Richard said, we get from fat. <laughs> Lovely, delicious fat. Mm-hmm. So how was your week, my friend? As I said, your voice sounds better. Yeah, I've had I've had a good week. I've been doing some woodworking. I've been building some bookshelves for this uh, house that we've just moved into. Nice. And I, I'm also going to build an audio isolation uh, uh, room uh, out of plywood. And, nice. Uh, that that's really for pod, for professional podcasting. So the room I'm in right now has got a lot of reflective audio surfaces, and so mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. a little bit echoey. Um, you'll notice the audio quality improve out of sight when I finish that. Awesome. That's great. Mm, so how was your week, Carl? Oh, I had a long week. I was working on Keto Fest. It was a great week, though, of course. I got the rentals all taken care of, you know, the tents and tables and chairs and 
nice. uh, all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got the projector and screen for the Crocker house. The Kickstarter t-shirts are ordered. Nice. I finally got everybody to give me their details, most of them anyway. Mm-hmm. Got a list of 50 or so volunteers ready to help get stuff done. Mm. Thank you very much, people. Yeah. It's awesome. I got the titles and abstracts from all the speakers, which you can read at mm. schedule.2keto.com. That's a work in progress, yep. by the way. Mm-hmm. Got the cooking demo dishes defined. Excellent. We also put the yoga class and walking tour tickets on the website, ketofest.com. Excellent. Oh, and after KetoFest, you know, um, Taffy Elrod, as I said in the intro there, is doing uh, three-hour hands-on cooking lessons at RD86 Space. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those recipes look awesome. They do, yeah. Mm. That's going to be the Monday, and if those classes fill up, she'll do more on Tuesday and on through Wednesday if necessary. Nice. And on top of that, I've been writing code for my day job and having fun with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were also on uh, Jimmy Moore's podcast this week. Oh, we were. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That was fun. We're talking about Keto Fest. And- yeah, we recorded that last week. And uh, earlier, um, we talked to Carrie Brown. Yes, we did. We this did. last weekend. We can't mm-hmm. wait for her shows to emerge. Yeah, those will come out after KetoFest, probably. Probably, yep. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, I had a great week. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I forgot one thing. Okay. I passed all my subjects at university. Yes, congratulations, <laughs> my friend. Kicking ass. So, yeah. I mean, I, I would have liked high, high results, um, and I'm going to need a higher GPA if I want to get uh, fast-tracked into a PhD program. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, that's that's the goal. I'm, I'm, I, right. I've got some research I want to do, and the whole point of studying biochemistry is to basically have a good firm um, foundation uh, yeah. with which to do that. But, um, you know, I, I had a few distractions over the past six months. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's not going to happen. I'm, I'm not going to be buying another house in the, during exam week again and uh, or uh, family funerals, hopefully, during yeah. exam week and uh, – and all that. So, um, so anyway, the, the, um, yep. I'm, I'm pretty happy with the results and uh, onward and upward from here. So are we. That's great <laughs> stuff. I can't wait till we have to change the intro to say we're not doctors because you will be. Yeah. No, I'm, I still won't be a doctor. <laughs> I mean, certainly I won't, be a do- I won't be anyone else's doctor. Well, it might be uh, piled higher and deeper, you know, <laughs> PhD. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Richard, let's give away some swag. Yeah, every show we pick a lucky winner at random from the members of our Two Keto Dudes fan club. Yes, and today we're giving away a treasure trove of stuff from vendors we like, all of which you can find at giveaway.2keto.com or fanclub.2keto.com. So who's our winner this week? Today's winner is Robin Root. Yeah. Congratulations, Robin. Awesome. So, Carl, let's tell everybody what Robin has won. Well, the first thing we're giving away is a Two Keto Dudes coffee mug that says, Keep Calm and Keto On. That's very good advice. And we're also giving away a signed copy of Lies My Doctor Told Me by Dr. Ken Berry. And a packet of Peak Tea, recommended by Dr. Jason Fung and others to support fasting. It's a dehydrated instant green tea with many flavors. Just add water and you've got an amazing tea, iced or hot, that will help you with your fasting efforts. Uh, we're also giving away a cheese-making kit from Pamela Zorn. Yes, we're putting one of these kits in the KetoFest attendee bag, and she's going to do a cheese-making demo at KetoFest. Outstanding. And if you don't want to wait to win some swag, you can always buy all sorts of it online at gear.2keto.com. Yes. Congratulations, Robin. And that brings us right up to... Mail! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Carl, what do you got? 
This one comes right out of the ketogenic forums, and it's entitled Concerned Call from PCP's Nurse, Primary Care Provider. Mm -hmm. I have a physical coming up with my PCP in a week and had to get some blood tests done. Mm. I've been keto since February. Here's how the conversation went. Nurse. Hi, is this Mr. So-and-so? Me. Yes, Mm -hmm. it is. Nurse. Hi, this is Dr. Yada Yada's office. Nurse, we have your blood work back and need to discuss the results. Very concerned voice. Me. Okay, what's going on? Nurse. Well, there's two things that the doctor is concerned about. First is your LDL. That's the bad cholesterol. That number is 147. The normal range is less than 100. Me. Okay, what's the other concern? Mm -hmm. Nurse. Well, your fasting glucose is 111. This should be below 100. Me. What was my fasting insulin? Nurse. Let me see. Hmm. Yes, that was 8.3. Oh, very good. The norm is (laughs) 2 to 25. Me. I can explain. I started a ketogenic (laughs) diet in February. My body is eating its own fat. Within about two years, I'll be at my ideal weight and my LDL will come down. There actually is no science that links high LDLs to heart disease. In fact, the complete opposite has been found. My sugars are a bit high because my muscles are now burning ketones. Given my reasonable insulin, I'm not diabetic and therefore not concerned. This is normal. Long pause. (laughs) Me, a better indicator of heart disease is the relationship between triglycerides and HDL. What's my HDL? Nurse. Hmm. Let me see. And in an excited voice, they went from 36 to 45. (laughs) The norm is 39. Mm. Me. Awesome. What are my triglycerides? Long pause. Nurse, in a really excited voice, they went from 187 last year to 93. Norm is less than 150. Me. One sec, pulling calculator app off my phone. If you divide your total triglycerides by your HDL, you get a much better indicator of coronary artery disease. Less than two is great. Two to four, okay, and above four is a concern. So last year, this number was about 5.2, not good. This year's Mm -hmm. number is around two. Excellent. (laughs) Nurse, how did you do this? Me, I went on a ketogenic diet a few months ago. Nurse. Did you lose any weight? Me, yes, about 40 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) Nurse, what? At that point, we spent the next few minutes with her quizzing me about this ketogenic diet thing, and I'd like to acknowledge Carl and Richard at this point. Had it not been for what I learned from the Two Keto Dudes podcast, I likely would have went on statins and off keto, which likely would have killed me. Thanks, guys. What you do is truly a vocation. You're so welcome. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'd actually make a couple of comments about that. When I was put on statins, uh, it was because my LDL went over 200, which is 200 milligrams per deciliter, the US measurement. Mm. That used to be the threshold. As soon as you go over 200, you'd get get told to to go on statins. And, of course, that deranged all my glucose control, and I went from being pre-diabetic to to frank type 2 diabetes yeah but the interesting thing is that you know they've moved the bar down now so that they can sell more statins so now the bar is down down to 100 which is ridiculous it is ridiculous absolutely ridiculous yeah but anyway and the other thing that's interesting there is that the nurses um 
uh, understanding of the appropriate range of of insulin from two to twenty um, is 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 probably not accurate. I mean, really, you want your fasting. I know we've had an argument yeah, with Captain yeah. Crofts about this, but you really want your fasting insulin to be, you know, down down below fourteen, or you're just mm. not burning fat. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So, what you got, Richard? Uh, I've got a similar message. It was a personal message that somebody sent sent me on on Facebook. This is from Keith, and Keith says, "Hey guys, love your podcast. I started keto three months ago with an A one C of six point six, and I just got my lab results back." And I'm now 5.1. Well done, sir. Well done, Keith. Congratulations. (laughs) However, my cholesterol numbers are up. Total cholesterol uh, was 175. It's now 258. Mm -hmm. LDL was 102. It's now 174. Mm -hmm. Um, My HDL, that's this quote-unquote good cholesterol, as we Mm -hmm. discussed previously, (laughs) uh, that went from 38 to 59. And my triglycerides went from 156 to 121. Wow. I've read a little bit about the triglyceride to HDL ratio. I believe my ratio to be good. Um, by the way, Keith, it's excellent. Yes. Well done. Yeah. Uh, keep it up. Uh, he said, Keith, Keith goes on to say, my doctor wants to put me on statins. Oh, yeah, I also lost about 32 pounds. What <laughs> advice can you give me? <laughs> Refer to previous mail. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, uh, we really hear this a lot. Um, it's a common pattern. Um, it, the thing is that VLDL, and LDL's job is to carry fat from your liver to cells that are using fat. So right. it's carrying, you know, if your mu- muscles and your uh, uh, peripheral cells are using fat, then then that LDL's job is to carry fat to them. Right. Previously, you were using glucose, which goes in your bloodstream because it's water-soluble. But, That's you right. know. Yeah, it, fat has to tra- travel around transit in lipoprotein boats, and uh, yep. LDL's job is to carry fat from from your liver to cells that are using fat. Yeah. When you had an HbA1c of 6.6, you were mainly storing fat so that the, the cells that were taking on board that fat were your adipocytes, your fat cells, and you were mainly burning glucose. Um, so when you became fat adapted now, all your cells are in the market for fat and your liver makes more lipoproteins. So that's one thing. Um, but here's the important thing. Your triglycerides went down because that's how we transport around fat. And as triglycerides inside lipoproteins, that's how we transit fatty acids around the body. Mm. So your LDL is mostly full of non-triglyceride lipids, such as cholesterol. Right. Your HDL went up because it's consumed at a faster rate when your LDL is full of triglycerides and no cells are in the market to draw that down. Yeah, right. So uh, triglycerides over HDL are great, and that's what your doctor really should be looking at in your lipid panel. And the fact that you went from a diabetic HbA1c to non-diabetic levels, he should be utterly amazed by that as, quote, unquote, everybody knows diabetes only gets worse. That's right. And you're reversing it. He should be saying, that's impossible. Congratulations. What did you do? Right. Um, Anyway, so uh, if your LDL goes over 200, then you would meet, this is, the, the old diagnosing criteria for a statin, but mm. apparently they've lowered the bar again. So yeah, right. they must, statin manufacturers want to sell more of them statins. Um, one of the world's best lipidologists, Thomas Dayspring, says under 300 LDL is not diagnostic. Mm. Um, I Personally, I disagree with him, and I consider only familial hypercholesterolemia levels of LDL are really useful. But yeah. um, statins are not without side effects. And I'll put in the show notes a link to my experience with statins. Um, and and I, I suggested to Keith, he's 
feel free to send all of this to his physician. I'm yeah. not an expert. I'm just a motivated patient who looked into this for my own health. Mm. But the bottom line is I think that his results, Keith's results are awesome. Um, and, you know, if if you want to know how awesome his results are, watch fix fix1.2keto.com and yep. look at the difference in risk rates of all the diabetic complications, including cardiovascular disease, between somebody who is a 5.1 HbA1c and a 6.6 HbA1c. Absolutely. And by the way, uh, at KetoFest this year, we're going to have a lot of talks about lipids in LDO. Mm. And yeah. yeah, we almost want to call this, you know, the heart disease show because uh, <laughs> there's so much talk. I mean, this is really the last kind of bugaboo that people need to get over is this fear of fat yeah. and fear of high cholesterol. So um, you can get a live stream ticket to KetoFest. Yeah, you if just, you can't make it out to New London, Connecticut, um, that's right. you can always live stream it and watch the shows live. We'll eventually put them on YouTube after a couple of months. Right. But if you want to get access to the content immediately, uh, the best way to do that is the live stream. There you go. Mm -hmm. So, Richard, tell me about your interview with Joe Kosterich. So, Joe is this uh, really outspoken, opinionated, low-carb doctor from Western Australia um, who I got to meet when I was... Uh, uh, over at the Perth conference, and this is the last of the of the Western Australian uh, interviews that I did. Mm. Uh, and now he's he's a he's outspoken on uh, illegalisation of marijuana, and he's very against the government getting involved in food standards and mm. and in um, in um, in things like you know um, dietary guidelines. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I don't entirely agree with him on that that point because I I I would like uh, the government to at least. Uh, admit that saturated fat is not a nutrient of concern because the scientists have already admitted that. And the only, you know, the only way that we're going to move past this is for the government to 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 go back on their dietary guidelines. Yeah, the government needs to reverse course. Otherwise, everybody's going to fall. Just continue following the bad advice that they've already given us. Yeah, well, we're going to continue to to uh, give people all the information that we have that uh, disagrees with that. Right. Joe is a, a an outspoken and very popular doctor in Western Australia, and uh, it, this was an amazing interview. So let's roll it. All right, we'll see you on the other side. So I'm here at Low Carb Perth. Uh, we've just had a wonderful conference, and it was organised uh, by a couple of guys, one of whom is uh, Dr. Joe Kostrich, and I have him on the line, and we're talking about. Uh, the Low Carb Conference. So, uh, welcome, Joe. Thank you, Richard, to the Two Keto Dudes podcast. And uh, so, how did this conference come about? Mm. I um, have been working with with John Wright, mm -hmm. who is uh, with Metabolic Health Solutions, and uh, both he and I went to the Low Carb Down Under conference on the Gold Coast right. last year, yes. um, which was which you know, is an where excellent we, we met, one, yeah. and was mm -hmm. very very well attended. And I think you gave a presentation yeah, there as well. <laughs> yes. um, and John and I came away with an idea: well, maybe we can try and do something on a slightly smaller scale in in Perth. Mm. And then, as a lot of these things do, starts with an idea. We had a couple of sort of coffee yeah. meetings, yeah. started to think, well, what might it look like in terms of a, a speaker roster? When can we do it? Because mm -hmm. you've got to sort of squeeze it in before Easter. We don't want to hit the beginning of the footy season. Yeah. Um, school just started <laughs> a few weeks ago. Right. Uh, there was low carb Breckenridge a couple of weeks ago. So we yeah. selected on a date. Obviously, it worked with, uh, with Rod Taylor from Low mm -hmm. Cab down under to say, well, we're wanting to put this together. And he gave us pretty much carte blanche to say, mm -hmm. well, look, put a program together, flick it by me. Uh, we invited a number of, of speakers, um, both local and, and interstate. And yeah. as it turned out, it all just 
fell into place and it was was wonderful to have uh, you know close to 100 people in the audience yeah it worked really well in fact you had a lot of uh, unusually for one of these low carb conferences you had a lot of type 1 diabetes focus which is which is quite remarkable and there were some local uh, type 1 diabetics like um, Beck Johnson who I'd never heard of before mm. what a fascinating story she had well, her story of, of being diagnosed at uh, 17 mm. and uh, similar to to Troy Stapleton's story Going down the conventional path, this is what they tell me to do, I'll follow it and, and do the right thing, and then finding it's just not working leads people onto a voyage of, of discovery. So I think locally, um, I suppose a number of people who either would have been familiar with, with Beck or know of her story having swum the, the Rottnest Channel swim, so for yeah. people who aren't in Perth, Rottnest is about 20 kilometres off the coast of, mm. of Perth, and you can swim from, and there's a, a, a relay swim or an individual swim. Um, so to do that as a type 1 diabetic uh, is an extraordinary uh, feat. Absolutely. Um, and she's the CEO of the uh, Type 1 uh, Institute here in Perth, which is mm. looking to help um, families and uh, particularly children with Type 1 diabetes. Yeah. They do a remarkable job of normalising and, and bringing Type 1 kids together so that they can have a normal experience. And, and I mean, she tells a story about the pizza story mm. where she made a pizza, you know, with these kids and, and it, uh, it just it just reminded me that, you know, these kids are isolated from the moment of their diagnosis. So they, they're unique. That they're different, and and this is an opportunity for them to be in a in a group where they are no longer the different one. They are the normal. Very much so. They can just. I suppose, you know, muck in with, with other children in a similar situation. It's also very helpful for the parents because mm. they can be isolated as, as well sure. um, and getting learnings and experience from other, other parents. So that, that builds a community. And, of course, the other thing that, uh, that Beck's been, you know, fantastic in looking to develop is, is talking to these families and, and children about changing how they're eating. So rather than just eating lots of carbs and then, well, yeah. it's all right, just up your insulin to, to, to cover it. Yeah. The analogy is a bit like, well, look, just put some more petrol on the fire, but look, we'll pour some more water on at the other end. It just, you know, really <laughs> does make you sort of scratch your head. Um, so really helping with these people say, well, you, you can do things a different, a different way. Mm. And it is difficult because all the institutions, most of the doctors, um, you know, most of the associations are still all in lockstep. Yeah. So to have somebody like Beck running this sort of centre, providing support and advocating on behalf of a, of a better way, or at, at very, very, very least another option that's it and that's and that's it for me uh, from type 2 diabetes my focus in life now my new career for the latter half of my life is to make sure that type 2 diabetics and people with metabolic syndrome and type 1 diabetics have the option of a ketogenic diet because right now if you're mm. if you're if you're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes the, the progress is you go to meet your cde your diabetes educator normally they're normally an apd and they will tell you what diet you should eat for the rest of your mm. life and it'll be a high carbohydrate diet it'll be 300 grams of carbs a day it'll be a low calorie diet to try and lose weight because obviously getting fat gave you diabetes is in in the, the their, their model of the of the story and so um and you're going to go on that diet and you're going to be unable to control your glucose and your disease is going to progress and get worse 
And if you ever dare to, like in my case, I, I said to my CDE, I, when I was, you know, 10 years ago, when I lived in America, I was on the Atkins diet and that worked really well for me. Could I try mm. that? And she said, no, well, people who have diabetes can't do Atkins because you, you, it, you, you, you have tighter metabolic tolerances, so you're not able to, to get away with something like that. And if you tell anyone else in, in group about that diet, we're going to kick you out of group. So it was, it was you know, that was... <laughs> Remarkable. That really is that really is quite extraordinary, and arguably goes to the whole crux of this issue that people should be entitled to get information and then make a decision. And yeah. we're told from time to time, and I think this is true, that the future is going to be precision medicine. Right. So, in other words, at the moment, even with pharmaceuticals, we can give you a tablet for blood pressure. It's been trialled. It's found to be safe. But no pharmaceutical has ever been shown to work for 100% of people. Right. And nothing has ever been shown to not have side effects in 100% <laughs> of people. So, yeah. it's always, let's see if this works for you. The odds are in your favour, but it's not a given. The concept of precision medicine is being able to identify who might respond to a particular treatment and who might be more prone to, to side effects. Now, I think right. this is still a distance into the future. Mm. But with, I suppose, with, with diet, it, it really works very well on the concept of what we call N equals 1 that says, how about you see what works for you and yeah. you, you can monitor your blood sugar. Right. Uh, you can monitor your weight. You know, there's a lot of things you can monitor mm. With the changes that you make, and there's a couple of possibilities. It's either going to bring about some improvement or it doesn't. If it does bring about improvements, you'd continue. If it Great. didn't bring about yeah. improvement after a, you know, a reasonable period of time, then you might say, well, this is not for me and I'll do something else. Absolutely. But this notion that anything other than the, the, the you know, the Dietitians Association slash Heart Foundation slash Diabetes Association view of the world and anything else, not only is it not for you to consider, it's actually wrong and it's dangerous. Right. That's really, um, I, I think that's the biggest issue. Let yeah. people get information and make, make their own decisions. Yeah. To be honest, at the time, I accepted it because this was the expert telling me. But then once, I'd, uh, once I went away and, and, had, and thought about it a bit, I thought, no, I'm going to do some research and try and find out what some more information about this, and and that was when I that was when I ran into Tim Noakes' presentation mm. on YouTube, and that's where he led me to Art and Science of Low Carb, and basically the 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 ball rolled downhill from that point onwards, and and I got to where I am. But you know, had I not had, there's a lot of things that had to happen there for me to work my way into into health, and so my my role now, as I see it, is to is to be um, to be public and to be out there and talking to you know, 100,000 people a week about mm. what worked for me. And now maybe that won't work for them. And as you say, maybe a, maybe a high-carb diet will be appropriate for some people. I don't particularly care. I just want to make sure that some people have the option of what I did because I really – I wasn't given the option. I took it, mm. you know. And that's important. And I think a problem we have in society at the moment increasingly is that there's a relatively small group of people who, such as you, yourself, who are prepared to say, they've told me this, it just doesn't quite sit. I'm actually going to do my own research and find out. Yeah. The majority of people have been conditioned mm. to just accept what they're, they're told and the, they, they don't really feel that, it's, that they can go and find out information. Right. So, and, and I think a really empowering message is you can make, you can look and see what you can find. There's a lot of talk about Dr. Google. Not everything on Dr. Google is, is right. But you know mm. what? Not everything is wrong right. either. You know, when it comes to eating, mm. 
it's an interesting thing that in Australia, dietitians are not uh, controlled by APRA, the Australian Healthcare Practitioners Regulatory Authority, because yeah. it's deemed that they can't actually do a lot of harm. I right. mean, unless you're severely allergic to a particular food. Yeah, like a peanut allergy yeah, or something. Peanut then, allergy, yeah, and yeah. you necessarily yeah. shouldn't eat peanuts or, you know, those sort of things. It's. <laughs> The worst thing that can happen is you eat something and it just doesn't really agree with you that well. Um, And if you continue to eat a particular way, well, we know that um, eating in a particular way and and especially being on a sort of a higher carb type diet as per the dietary guidelines over the last, last 35 years has led us into the, the mess that we're in. Well, it's a long-term chronic thing. It's a yeah. long-term thing, and we as human beings are used mm. to, to, when we talk about nutrition, we think about short-term goals. Yeah. I'm hungry now. Am I going to mm. get enough energy from that meal? We're not conditioned to think about if I eat this meal and then eat it every day for 10 yeah. years, what will it do? <laughs> exactly. Um, and also, with very rare exceptions, there's this view, well, if you eat too much protein or eat too much fat, it's going <laughs> right. to be bad. Yeah. And look, there was an instance, and I think it's important to say this, in um, in the south of WA last mm-hmm. year, a particular woman did die. She was on an extremely high-protein diet, training very hard. She had a relatively obscure genetic condition mm-hmm. that impacted on her ability to metabolize that protein. Mm. So, of course, all the usual – and that's a tragedy. Yeah. All the usual suspects her, her come out. Her mother friended me on say, Facebook, so mm-hmm. I know about the story, yeah. Come out and say, oh, it's all to do with a high-protein diet. No, in actual fact, it's a bit like saying if you're allergic to peanuts, and it wasn't an allergy, it's a met- yeah. metabolism thing. Yeah. If you're allergic to peanuts and you eat them, that's going to be bad for you. It doesn't. It's not a problem of the peanut. Mm. It's actually just your particular body is not suited to it. Right. Um, but if people, um, I suppose, can experiment on themselves – in you know ninety nine point nine 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 percent of times, worst thing that's going to happen is just going to find it's not working yeah. for them. Or I mean, in the case of eating too much protein, you'll become nauseous before you yeah. become ill. Yeah. If you it, unless you're unlucky like she was, unless you have this rare like one in eight thousand mm. uh, instance of a of a disease that's that's not bad enough to be diagnosed as a child, but bad yeah. enough to be diagnosed in an autopsy. Mm. That. That's a rare case. But yeah. Exactly. And I think also, and this is something I speak about a lot, is we don't need to take anything to extremes. No, that's it. So if we're on a low-carb diet and we go to an Italian restaurant, does that mean that we can never order a pasta? No, it doesn't mean that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's, it's important that we do keep a little bit of balance because apart from anything else, um, you know, Food is also to be in, in, enjoyed mm. um, and enjoyed in, in company. And, yeah. and if it's your thing with a glass of red wine or whatever your, your you know, it might be a glass of water, mm-hmm. whatever you prefer. But I think the thing is we can get, you know, talk about beyond forest, beyond trees. We can sort of really get down to little sort of, you know, things on leaves, not yes. even the leaves, <laughs> in, in getting very obsessed about it. Yeah. And, and I don't think that. That is helpful, and I don't think zealotry in in any sphere, and that's in the sort of on the the dietitian's side Mm -hmm. or, you know, even some people in the low-carb space can get very zealous. And I don't think that helps because people who are in the middle who want to maybe make some changes, they might Mm -hmm. not want to go the whole way, but they might say, look, you know, maybe rather than having breakfast cereal, maybe I should think about having eggs. But you know what? I like a slice of toast sometimes. Yeah. 
and it's not helpful if those people are made to feel, well, they've broken all the rules <laughs> or, right. you know, they're not yeah. part of the group not anymore. How dare, yeah, yeah they're, you, know, they're, you know, how dare you? It's like, well, this is working for me. Yeah. And we all know that people are slightly different. Some people have got higher tolerances than others. Absolutely. But, you know, every so often you can have something that is sort of in inverted commas um, bad for you um, because you enjoy it. And the enjoyment is actually good for you. It'll release, it'll release yeah. all your happy hormones and it'll yeah. make you feel better. So, you know, we've just got to just, – we, we just have to keep that sort of – I know balance is a hackneyed term. Yeah. But we don't want to obsess or stress about what we're eating. We want to get most of it right 80% of the time. If we do That's that – That's a credo principle, yes. Yeah, then, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, the rest is going to be okay. Yes. I, I think for me, I choose to have a tighter tolerance because I know one time when I – I was at a friend's wedding and I decided I'm going to have half a pavlova for dessert because I feel like eating that pavlova, damn it. And I had a wonderful time, but I had a direct reaction in that my knee locked up afterwards and I, I was unable to sleep for almost 24 hours because mm. of the because of my because of my knee and uh, I, I don't know if it was related but there's there's causal or there's mm. mechanistic reasons why it could be related and I just decided from that point on I don't think I want to eat pavlova again so that, and that's a perfect example mm. of finding what works for for you absolutely um yeah. and look, maybe it was causal maybe mm-hmm. it was coincidental yeah. you know who knows you've had that experience that's led you to make a, a decision and that's working for you and I think other people can also also have experiences and find out what what works for them. Yeah, I, I think the powers that that be, and, and this is one of my little hobby horses, mm-hmm. have sought to disempower people, um, especially in public health. Um, they think everybody is an idiot and treat mm. them as such. Right. Um, most people can actually figure out for themselves what's working best for them in their own circumstances. And the other thing is people's circumstances change. So mm. what worked for you 10 years ago might not still be working today. Exactly. And yeah. in 10 years' time, it maybe you, you need something different. So these, these, particularly these dietary guidelines, which assumes one size fits all, is about as far removed from the concept of precision medicine as Absolutely. it's possible to get. <laughs> Broad brush strokes, fine. Here's yeah. a start point. Here's some you know, maybe rough percentages or, or some concepts you can work with. But after that, it's about adapting it to your own circumstances and your circumstances will change because yeah. we all change over time. Yeah, so human beings are like that. We calibrate. We find something that works for us and when it stops working for us, we optimise. We change what we're doing slightly and, and this is an innate part of the way we mm, we behave yeah. and, and and so I, I totally get that and certainly in my case with my knee as you say I mean I recalibrated so you know I found out what worked for me but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's another human on the planet it'll work for you know that's exactly right nobody has to tell a lion to eat zebras or gazelles <laughs> right. they just do it yeah, they yeah. just figure out it, that, it, that it works um i don't think anybody has to tell a sheep to eat grass they right. just figure it out by themselves yeah. human beings for tens of thousands of years were able to figure out what to eat now immediately and this is one of the criticisms of a, of a, of a paleo diet well people didn't live in long as long in those days that's quite correct they didn't die of heart attack and type 2 diabetes complications. <laughs> um, there are a whole lot of other things that, like that, that got them. Yeah, predators, <laughs> yeah. exposure, infections, yeah. you name it. Um, 
But what we see now is that the disease patterns in Western societies are 75% of the disease burden are chronic lifestyle-related conditions. So wow. that is heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, complications of obesity, arthritis, um, possibly Al- some mental health dementia. problems. Yep. Yep. And um, you know, even some forms of, of cancer mm-hmm. um, yes. have not got direct nutritional uh, cause, mm-hmm. but there, are, there, is a, there is a contribution. Yes. Now, if what we were eating as per what the experts tell us was so great, you know, maybe we wouldn't have these problems. And it's also interesting that it's never their fault. Um, You know, you'll hear people come out and say, oh, people don't follow the guidelines. Interestingly, and and nutritional surveys, you know, they they, They they have some, they are, they they have um, uh, some validity, but, you know, it's a bit like, um, uh, you know, TV ratings or the old days surveys, you used to tick a box or you watched or you didn't. But food sales figures have validity. And what food sales figures show is that people have increased their uh, intake of grains, reduced their intake of eggs, dairy, Mm -hmm. red meat, and full fat products. It's the beginning of an inflection point because of community groups and people sort of figuring out for themselves. But this notion that people haven't followed the guidelines and that's why we have these problems is actually fundamentally wrong as per food sales figures. And that's something I, I, you know, statistics people can argue with, but sales figures are what they are. Yeah, they are. And and it, for people who argue that uh, that we're not following the guidelines, that is a cognitive dissonance. That mm. is not accepting the fact that possibly the guidelines could be wrong. Evidently, the guidelines must be right, and therefore there must be another explanation. And it's extraordinary sometimes that people who are um, obviously well-educated and, and you would think reasonably intelligent are just have either blind spots or they're blinkered, or they're just so wrapped up in their own ideology and their own worldview that they can't even countenance that maybe something's wrong. The whole concept of of scientific sort of theory and experiment is you start from the position that what you believe is wrong, and you've got to try and prove whether it might be right. Mm. That has now been turned on its head Mm. in a number of areas with the view that Everything we say is right, and anybody who challenges it must be wrong for no other reason that they that they that challenge right. <laughs> it. And then worse than that, not only people who is wrong, they need to be silenced, and we've seen yeah. evidence of, of that. Absolutely. And they're dangerous. Um, you know, I get Pete Evans is not everybody's cup of, of tea sure. for, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. I've met him a couple of times. He's, you know, he's a he's lovely a nice guy. guy. Lovely yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean I agree with everything he says, but he's a nice guy. And when he says, you know, eat lots of vegetables and good quality fats and proteins, which is the core of a paleo-type diet, I don't really see this as being the devil incarnate. No. Um, equally, you know, his... Not worth mockery. I mean, this is the, the mockery that he gets online. Yep. And our international audience probably won't know him, but he's a famous chef in Australia who has this TV show, um, and and he has hate groups de- mm. devoted on the internet yes. to mocking him mm. and, and putting him up for, for ridicule. And yep. it's rid- that itself is ridiculous. And, you know, for example, in a, in a paleo diet, it doesn't include dairy. In keto diet, it includes dairy. As we spoke before, find what works for, yeah, for you. Exactly. And 
if you wanted to adopt a broadly paleo type approach because mm. that's your preferred thing for low carb but you know what you wanted to have some dairy in it it's okay if you were keto and you happened to be lactose intolerant <laughs> right. and dairy doesn't really yeah. work for you yeah. then you can still be keto but you need to find something else right. which gets back to finding what works for you within these broader parameters yeah. but when we have um Insulin metabolism, and, and as you know, insulin is responsible, amongst other things, for fat storage, mm. and carbs cause insulin release. Mm. So for people who are trying to lose weight, if they're putting in something that will cause the body to go into fat storage mode, it's probably not going to work very yeah. well. And if you have diabetes, which is fundamental, and this is type 1 or 2, yeah. there are problems with carbohydrate regulation, either because you're sure. not producing enough insulin in type 1 or you're producing too much and you've just switched off to it in type yep. 2. Mm-hmm. The more carbohydrate that you put into your system, clearly that can't be a good thing, but yet you'll get people say, oh, increase your carb intake and then use more Medicaid. insulin. Ugh. And I, f- I find that an extraordinary stance yeah. for people to take because from the proverbial person from Mars came here, they would say, well... If you're having to use B to offset the effects of A, why wouldn't you have less of A so you might not need as much of B? Doesn't that seem to be sort of, instead of saying, look, I'll smash this window, but, you know, I've got some sticky tape and we put it back together. Why why just not smash it in the first place? Yeah, especially when you can can establish that exposure to insulin causes all of these horrible things. What what you're doing with the high-carbohydrate diet in the case of of a type 1 diabetic is you're requiring them to have more insulin. And because, uh, you know, a type 1 diabetic, they have a big bolus of insulin that, that releases, you know, over time. Um, a, a non-type 1 diabetic has pulsatile insulin that goes up and down to avoid mm. resistance. So making somebody who has type 1 inject so much insulin increases the chance that they're going to get type 2 diabetes and there's yeah. nothing worse than type 1 and type 2 in the same body. That's yeah. a horrible place to be. Yeah. So. No, that, that's exactly right. And then... The, the, as we spoke before, the, the, the almost virulent um, opposition, and you found it from your own experience, <laughs> yeah, to saying, well, maybe there's another option that yeah. you could try or think about or see how it you know, works on your sugars. And, um, you know, for example, Troy spoke at the, at the conference and, and Beck Johnson, you mentioned, also spoke at the conference. Yeah. Their own experience their sugar markers improved when they changed their diet. Yeah. Um, I think anybody out there who sees an improvement in markers that they're trying to improve after they've made some sort of change or intervention are going to feel that that's a good thing for yeah. them. And I think for any um, practitioner to tell a person like that that that's the wrong thing when they've brought about some improvement, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I think that there's a real ethical consideration in yeah. that. And, and Troy actually showed his metal bento boxes with the food that he eats that's hardly a uh, harsh. That looked delicious. The food that he's eating. So, well, you had know. some leftover. <laughs> had some salmon. I think he might have a bit of leftover yeah. steak or something from the night before. He had some avocado. Almonds he had some and berries. Cheese. And cheese. <laughs> uh, this is this is normal food. Yeah. This is actually normal food. Yeah. It. It. Um. And and I think uh, Troy paraphrased Michael Pollan, and and I would sort of do the same. That I says, agree with that. Yeah. Eat. Eat real or whole, W-H-O-L-E, food. Right. 
food that doesn't actually have ingredients. You know, yeah. an almond doesn't have ingredients. It yeah. hasn't been and manufactured somewhere. Neither does a berry, neither does an avocado, neither does an egg, neither does a piece of salmon. And don't eat too often was the other thing he got, which which is so much better than not too much. Mm-hmm. Michael Pollan's not too much. I mean, we have a satiety hunger signalling for a reason because we adequately fuel ourselves. Yep. And so Troy's modification was eat real food, plenty of meat, mm-hmm. and uh, not too often. Mm-hmm. And that's perfect, much better way of saying it. (laughs) And my take on that is eat foods that until not that long ago were either growing somewhere or moving around somewhere. Right. And if you do that, then how much or how frequently you're going to need to eat can be determined by what your body's telling you rather than the clock. Yeah. And I think what people find is when they go on to a lower-carb type diet, they don't get as hungry. Yeah. One of the other real problems with the high-carb diet and the dietary guidelines and what we've seen is people get up in the morning, they have you know some toast and some breakfast cereal because that's what they've been told, mm-hmm. and up goes their sugar levels, up goes their insulin levels, two hours later, down goes their sugar levels, followed by their insulin levels, mm-hmm. and then they're hungry again. Yeah. And then, oh, what am I going to eat now? Oh, what's available? A bicky or a muffin? You're <laughs> at work. Yeah. Um, and this cycle goes around and around and around and you're in constant fat storage mode and you're constantly hungry once you're eating foods that i suppose fill you up and give you that satiety and give you nutrition as well there's pretty minimal nutrition in a lot of these high carb processed foods Mm. then you're not really having to count calories you're not having to watch what you eat you're being guided by what works for you yeah in my case today um it's currently two in the afternoon we're recording this so I woke up about seven o'clock and I didn't eat. I had I had an espresso, and then I went for a ride. I did the bridge to bridge with um, with Jessica Turton, mm. and uh, we just hired a bike. And we, it was a lovely day out in Western in Perth to, to go for a ride. And I haven't eaten anything all day, and I'm not hungry now. I probably I may have something about seven or eight o'clock. I'll, I'll go to the, the the lounge at the at the airport on the way home, and um, I just I don't feel any hunger. I don't feel I don't feel any you know reactive hypoglycemia i'm just my body is perfectly fueled all day so it it works very well for me and and uh and uh and that's only because i'm on i'm I'm fat fueled if i was on a carb carb based diet i'd be eating six times a day you know because your body's telling you that it has enough energy because it's burning the energy that 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 you have and for people who are wanting weight loss, mm. then that's exactly what they want to be doing. They want to be using the, the, the energy that's been stored rather than putting in more energy. So you're not yep. using the energy that, that's been uh, been stored. Yeah. And I, I will say I, I, my sort of ideas about fasting have sort of changed or are changing. I, again, I think one has to be guided by what works for you rather than a number of hours or a number totally. of days. Totally. You know, when you're hungry, eat. But just because it's 7 o'clock doesn't mean you have to. Yeah. I, I find increasingly, and, and look, if you'd have asked me this two years ago, I'd have said, look, it's important to eat breakfast. And I always used to be on my kids' back I about thought, it. I as, thought that too, yeah. As, as, you know, and this is what we're all told. And mm. you sort of think, well, it sort of seems to make sense. But I find a lot of days now I will eat two meals a day, sometimes yeah. one meal a day. And you don't get hungry. And sometimes at lunchtime, you sort of think, am I hungry? Was it just at lunchtime? And and I think I should be having something to to eat. So I've made this case several times that uh, lunchtime is a myth and breakfast time is doubly so a myth. Mm. It's really when when you feel hungry, eat. Mindful eating, that's what it's about. It's about mindfully listening to the signals that your body's producing. And right now I'm not hungry, so I'm not going to (laughs) eat. 
and that's exactly the the, the, the right thing to be doing. Uh, look, on Friday, um, I think I made it through the day again just because it got really quite busy. Yeah. I, I think I had a, um, a protein bar that I did have somewhere through the day, <laughs> again, with that sort of half thinking, you know, do I need this or don't yeah, I need it? Yeah. Um, and then Friday night was my daughter's birthday through the week, so we went out and had a very nice steak and some veg nice. at, a, at, a, at a restaurant, and um, that was particularly, you know, particularly good, but it's not just the, the, the food. Lovely spot to go to, celebratory occasion. You know, there's also that enjoyment side of, yeah. of food. And so that's the other point you were making, yeah. You know, sometimes you can eat when you're not that hungry. You don't want to do it all the time because it yeah. does lead to troubles, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, now and again, you're actually doing it because you enjoy it. It's a bit like you enjoy a sunset or, um, right. you know, you might enjoy a walk in the park. There are certain things that we can do as humans because we actually enjoy it. It's a yeah. treat. And once upon a time, treats were something we did occasionally. We're now at the stage where treats have become something we do three times a day, and that's <laughs> right. the problem. Yeah, yes, it is. So so I'm, I'm curious uh, about uh, how, how your advice for people who uh, on managing their doctor and, and, and working with their doctor mm. to improve their health uh, goals. Yeah, look, that's difficult. And doctors, I suppose, like dietitians, like a lot of people are – also influenced and conditioned by what they've been taught. And also, unfortunately, in medicine, it used to be that people could go to their doctor, um, the doctor could provide you with information, ideas, and I suppose manage you as an individual and based on their, their knowledge. Now we have guidelines and protocols and increasingly right. doctors are expected to basically do things in some cookie cutter model because certain people in high places have decreed it. And you know, as we know, we've seen instances where doctors have deviated from that and have suffered consequences. Yeah. I think we're also at a little bit of a tipping point with that. Wow. And look, it's a little bit how you go about it. Mm. So look, for individuals, it is about going to your doctor and, and saying, look, this is an approach I'm, I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. No doctor is going to be very pleased to see you come in with sort of, you know, three reams of, of printed out yeah. internet things. Yeah. So if you can come in with a little bit of info and say, look, this is what I've, I've found. Um, this is what path I want to go down. And look, I fully understand that it's not conventional and I fully understand that, you know, I'm making an informed decision. Yeah. And those are the, the key words because no doctor wants to get sued um, or have the regulatory bodies crawling all over them. So as soon as we're in that situation where we've had a discussion and the individual really does understand what they're doing, then ultimately it'll be about the results. And I think a lot of doctors who are moving towards a, a greater acceptance of low carb, it's sometimes been because they've actually learnt from their their patients. And in the practice of medicine, a bit like the practice of law, you do learn as you go That's along. You don't happen, leave yeah. medical school with all the knowledge. In fact, you leave with sort of a bit less than you think you've yeah. probably had. Yeah. Um, so you do, and then you sort of think, well, if this has worked for this person, why has it? Mm, and then yeah. another person comes in the same. And there, I think there are a number of, of docs who've, you know, probably Troy's an example of that, who found through their own experience that it's yeah. worked for them. So that was, that was the pathway for Eric Westman, and he's one mm. of the early researchers in low-carb diets for Dr. Atkins. One of the, the pathway for him was somebody came in and their health had ra- dramatically improved, and it turned out that they'd gone on a low-carb diet, and he was just curious, and yeah. he, he dug into it, and it became a career for him, so... So it is about having that conversation mm. and saying, look, I don't want to turn everything on its head, but I want to make some changes and this right. is the way I want to go about it. And you know, can we monitor and see what, what happens? Look, there are also instances where sometimes, and I'm not saying this is the first, part, first thing to do, but look, there sometimes are instances where 
you know, people do need to, to change doctors if, if you're really going nowhere with it. I think there's a spectrum in medicine from those who are extremely in in with the sort of official view to those who are right. the radicals. Yeah. And probably everybody else is somewhere in the middle that genuinely, genuinely they want the best outcome yeah. for, the, for, the, for the patients. If you're coming in to see your doctor, they genuinely want the best health outcome for you, but they also will have a a view based on what they've been told and taught and heard that there's a way to go about that. So it's often frustrating for doctors as well that things aren't just going as according to plan. Yeah. So to come in as an informed patient and say, I think this is something that I, this is a path I want to go down and can we see how it goes, then uh, that's really about that informed discussion and, uh, and decision-making. Right. So it's important you go in with, uh, with uh, enough information to explain about what you interested in doing yeah. uh, absolve the doctor by saying that you you you, you have informed consent that yeah. you, this is what you want to do and yeah. you've done some research and you want their advice to make sure that you do it safely and that it's monitored yeah. and that's appropriate yeah. so what advice would you give to physicians who have a patient come to them with that kind of um, I mean is there anything specific that, that a doctor should do yeah. for look first thing is don't get too spooked and don't get get afraid of it um, do a little bit of your own research. There's no shortage mm. of research out there. And you don't have to read, you know, 50,000 papers. Uh, you know, the Pure Study is probably the, the, the best one. Sure. Um, which was 130,000 people in 18 countries over about seven or eight years showed conclusively that um, carbohydrates in the diet were associated with increased rates of cardiovascular disease yeah. um, and fats in the diet were not. And saturated was benign. was not a problem. Yeah. Uh, there was another fairly big study in about 2012, I think Rob Lustig might have been one of the okay. authors of that, showing that uh, type 2 diabetes was a function of sugar intake, not weight. So sugar contributed, and this we're talking about, again, refined carbs, mm -hmm. so it's not just the sugar in your tea or coffee, it's all refined carbs, yeah. contributed to obesity, obviously mm -hmm. through the effects of insulin and fat storage, and to type 2 diabetes. But it wasn't being obese that led to type 2 diabetes. Right. It was the in intake of refined carbs. And there was another massive study. It was 100-and-something countries over, <laughs> again, a 7- to 10-year period. So the doctors will say, well, you know, is there any research out there? Yeah, there is. And you just have um, to go looking for it, I'm You afraid. have to sort yeah. of maybe mm. do a little bit of a search for it. Mm. So there's a lot of talk over the last 25 years about what's called evidence-based medicine. I mean, mm. we're meant to do everything that has evidence. And it's good and it's bad. The good thing is you can find evidence for just about anything you want. Oh, dear. Um, so in this <laughs> particular case, it is a good thing because if anybody does query it, you can really say, look, here is the evidence. You asking me what I'm doing, does it have an, as a doctor, does it have an evidence base? Yeah, there is an evidence base and it's a pretty solid one. The fact that public health and government haven't caught on to it <clears throat> doesn't mean that it's not a yeah. strong evidence base. Right, that's a good call, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Joe. It's been. A, I had a great time yesterday. The, one of the best conferences I've been to in terms of the content, and it was unusual for me because I wasn't used to such a high amount of uh, type one. And we had two really strong stories about type one, but we also had stories about a lot, a lot of PhDs getting into type one and the ketogenic diet, and that. That it really is something that's lacking is good evidence for type 1. So great conference and met some fascinating people and done some wonderful podcasts. And thank you for the invitation. I do appreciate it. Richard, it's a pleasure. Thanks for your kind words about the, the conference and uh, thanks for the opportunity to be on your show. Thank you. Heard you say you're due for a little.
Wow, that was great, Richard. You know, Joe's caution against being too zealous really resonated with me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the most important thing you can do is cut sugar and starch. And as he says, get your happy hormones working and your body will heal itself. We don't have to be so precise. It's just in our nature, especially where diet and nutrition is concerned, to want to measure everything because we think, you know, if we follow the protocol to the T, that's the only time it's going to work. And it probably comes from us being disappointed by, you know, thinking we failed at following other protocols in the past. Yeah, I think once we get the sugar and starch out of the the picture and it's no longer deranging us, our bodies find a a good homeostasis where we we move to a healthy place. Yeah, that was great. Well, are you peckish? I'm a little bit puckish. Puckish? (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, then let's do some recipes. Yeah. Recipes. I'm just going to let you hang on that one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What do you got, Carl? Well, as you know, I did a Kitoki fried chicken night here at my house, uh, a mm. keto mini fest a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So you did fried chicken, and you you've done coleslaw, coleslaw. and you did yeah, and the the chocolate parfait, right? Right. Yeah. I haven't done the recipe for the chocolate parfait yet, and I will get to that. But now yeah. I'm gonna do biscuits. Yeah. Cookies, right? Well, you call them cookies. <laughs> They're not cookies, actually. Right. Biscuit is in the United States is a word for the closest thing I can think of in the UK, anyway, is a scone. But yeah, it's scone. Yeah. But it's savory and it's, you know, buttery and you generally eat it with gravy in the US. But uh, And I'll get to the gravy as well. Anyway, it's a, a, a very easy recipe. It's essentially two cups of almond flour two teaspoons Mm -hmm. of baking powder, half a teaspoon of salt, two large beaten eggs, and a third of a cup of butter melted. Of course, you can use coconut oil if you want to. It has Mm -hmm. a, you know, when when it solidifies, it's got a more crispy texture than butter, but butter tastes so good. Mm. So it's pretty simple. You preheat the oven to 350 Fahrenheit or 177 Celsius. You mix the dry ingredients and the wet ingredients in separate bowls. And you combine them, and it makes this really thick batter. Mm. Now, what I do is, uh, well, first of all, you're going to line a cookie sheet with parchment paper. Or if you have cookie sheets that just nothing sticks to, I got some new ones. They're amazing. You you don't need parchment. Mm. So here's what you do. Use an ice cream scoop. And you know the kind that has the thumb uh, release that has a little arc that scrapes the inside? That's what you want, you know? And you don't want a big one. You want a, 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 t- a tinier one, a small one. And you basically use that ice cream scoop to scoop out individual biscuits. And uh, it makes about 10. So mm-hmm. I could make 20 or, or so on a, on a big sheet with a double recipe. Right. And you bake them for about 15 minutes or until they're just starting to turn golden brown. You know, use the mm. thumb test too. If you push on them and you get goop. You got to leave them in a little bit longer, <laughs> but you don't def- definitely don't want to overcook them. You just want them golden brown, right? And nice. they're the best when they come right out of the oven. You let them sit for a few hours and they cool off. They're not as good. You just serve them hot, and that's nice. it, man. Everybody so, loved so, them, by the way. They yeah, were a big yeah, hit. I, I I actually want to try some of these. In I know in England it, there is a famous uh, breakfast called Devonshire tea, 
which is a scone, um, which is you know s- similar thing to a biscuit, right? Uh, cut it, cut in half, filled with clotted cream mm. and strawberry jam or raspberry jam. Yeah. But I can imagine actually just fresh raspberries, maybe sure. maybe or sliced strawberry slices, and then a little bit of clotted cream or triple cream or you know, the That'd cream be of the cream. Very nice. Mm, very yeah. nice. Now, so, now, what do you got, my friend? So I've got a recipe that uh, that I've actually eaten for the past two nights and I've put pictures on my Facebook stream and I will be putting together a recipe on our blog post for it. Okay. Uh, it's actually butter poached sous vide ribeye. Oh. Uh, yeah. And this was uh, – I've done uh, sous vide steak before, but this is, uh, this is a recipe that uh, I did for our buddy Dan Quibble who wanted a two keto dudes recipe to talk about in his group. Mr. Bacon so, Suit. Shout Mr. out to Bacon Dan. Suit. Yeah. <laughs> and and so he he asked us, do we have anything with sous vide? And I thought, oh, I've got I've got a couple of Wagyu steaks sitting in my fridge mm. aging nicely. Right. So um and I have a sous vide stick, so I'm gonna do that. Now mm. the interesting thing about whenever I talk about sous vide, people complain about fancy cooking, you know, that's fancy right, stuff right, that right. you're doing. It's actually the easiest way to get the perfect doneness of steak. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be too expensive either. We use the Innova no. Suvi sticks, which are a couple yeah. hundred bucks. 180 bucks uh, yeah. Australian, you know, so they're probably 150 US. So mm-hmm. this is nothing. So so what they do is they circulate water. They heat it up and circulate water so that you get a bath of water to a constant temperature. Right. And then you 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 can take um your your steak. So here's a, here's how I cook these these steaks. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, I put a steak on a uh, wooden board and I let it come to room temperature. Yeah. I season it with a little bit of salt and pepper on both sides and I put it in a plastic bag and I, I, I get as much of the air out of the bag as I can and seal the bag. Now, you can use a Ziploc uh, bag. You don't have to have fancy vacuuming equipment. I use the fancy vacuuming equipment because what I'm trying to do is to have no air in the bag right. to insulate the steak from the temperature of the water bath. Correct. Yeah. So normally when you put cook a steak on a hot pan, the heat of the pan starts moving through the steak and then you flip the steak and do the other side and the heat then starts moving up from the other side and then you take this the, the steak off, you let it rest and then you serve it. But what mm. happens is you get a gradient from really well done mm. to maybe medium rare in the middle, yep. you're going through different stages of that temperature because the temperature is moving its way through the steak. Right. What a sous vide does is it allows you to cook at a lower temperature for a much longer time so that the whole steak from end to end is medium rare. Yes. Or in the case of the one that I did last night, is rare to very rare. Oh. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah. and so but it, but it cooks it perfectly. So you know that end to end the steak is absolutely perfect. Mm. So I cook it, uh, if you want it rare, it's very rare. Uh, you're going to cook it at about 51.5 uh, degrees Celsius and you're going to cook it for about an hour. And that hour is going to allow the temperature to equilibrate through the entire steak. So the entire steak will be done to the precise degree that you want it to be. Nice. If you want your steak to be medium well, um, then it's going to be a hotter temperature. If you want it medium rare, it's going to be like 54 degrees Celsius. Mm. Um, and if you get in an overstick, those temperatures, there is an app that comes with it, and those, and you just go down to steak, ribeye, and ha- what kind of doneness that you want, and it will tell you what temperature you need to yep. do it at. Perfect. So, okay. So now 
at the end of this process, your steak's been sitting there for an hour in a lovely, it's been having a lovely warm bath, <laughs> getting to perfect, uh, rare to very rare in the middle. Yeah. And so what you then do is you, five minutes before it's out coming out of its bath, put a cast iron pan on the stove, crank it, and and you're going to have to put on your fan because this is going to get very smoky mm. um, and your smoke alarm is going to go off if you don't have your fan running in advance. <laughs> We're going to get this pan five minutes of full-on heat to really right. get to temperature. It's going to be hot. Smoking so, hot. Smoking. So then what you do is you take the steak out of the bag and it's got like a jelly consistency. Yeah. Um, it's it, and, and the fat has actually – that you'll, you'll notice that the fat has almost become jello-like instead of being sort of hard to the touch, mm. become almost jello-like. Um, just as tip, if you cook steak for an hour at the perfect temperature, all of that fat, um, that the, the proteins in the fat that used to be um, unpalatable become essentially gelatin. The connective tissue breaks down. Yeah, yeah. It, it breaks down from collagen to, to gelatin and, mm. and becomes that fat becomes delicious. But mm. anyway... I digress. So you've got the steak. It's just come out of the bag. It's going to be slightly wet. So we're going to dry it off because we don't want to put it in a hot pan when it's slightly wet. So we'll dry sure. it off with a, with, a, with a paper towel. And then you put it on the pan and you do nothing to it for a minute. You just let it sit there. Right. It's going to be t tortured on a very, very hot rolling cast iron pan. And the reason that you want it so hot is you want it to crisp up and crust the outside without spending so much time as it actually heats up the rest of the steak. Yeah. We only want the outside of the steak to be brown. We want the inside of the steak to be its perfect um, uh, yeah. medium rare or whatever, rare yeah, or very right. rare. So so anyway, once you've cooked it on one side, and it's, this is a, a pan with no fat in it. We haven't put any right. fat in the pan. Right. We're not seasoning it. It's going into a hot cast iron pan. Flip it over, and now the second side is going to get the same treatment for one minute. Yeah. And what you're going to do now is you're going to put in about 15 grams of butter and a sprig of thyme and a sprig of rosemary. Nice. Okay? And you're going to get a spoon. And so we now have the top side of the steak is the one that was first down on the pan. Mm. So now what we're going to do is we're going to tip the pan slightly, mm -hmm. and we for a minute, while the bottom side is getting its first blast, mm -hmm. we're going to be spooning that melting uh, frying butter mm. over the top of the steak with all of the aromats, with the mm. thyme and the, and the rosemary. We're going to be spooning them over the top of the steak. That's a French technique that they've been using over there for hundreds of years. Yeah, I think the French are probably using it for thousands of years. I'm sure <laughs> there's a there's a cave painting somewhere about some some Frenchman using this technique on on mammoth stocks. But <laughs> anyway, anyway, so uh, so we get, basically what you're doing is you're spooning this frying hot butter onto the top of the steak, and the milk solids and um, the surface of the steak. Uh, combined deliciously. Yes. And so, okay, so we, we've been there a minute. Now we're going to turn the steak over again. Some of the butter is now going to get to the underside. Yeah. And we do it for another minute. We keep ladling the spoon on of butter on top of the steak and mm -hmm. then get some tongs, take the steak out, put it on a board and let it sit there for a good five minutes just yep. to rest. And if you're concerned about it getting too cold, you can tent it with some aluminum foil just to keep the, the heat in. Put a little basket over the top of it, yeah. Mm. Now you've got all of this pan full of butter. Mm. It's sort of like steak-flavoured mm. butter <laughs> with aromats. So what are we going to do with that? Mm. Here's what I'm going to do with that. I'm going to get about a quarter of a cup of red wine. 
Yes. I'm going to pour it into this sizzling hot butter. <laughs> then get a whisk and I'm going to whisk it. And what that's going to do is it's going to pull any fond that's on the base of the pan. That's where all the flavor is. Mm-hmm. Off the bottom of the pan, the alcohol is going to boil off. The water is going to boil off. And what you're going to end up with is an emulsified sauce, uh, essentially a red wine jus. Yeah. You could throw a little fresh garlic in there too. And that's a good time to do that because it's not going to burn. Yeah. I put a bit of fresh garlic. I put a little bit of mushrooms in it. I put Mm. some spinach in and I'm basically wilting spinach in red wine jus. And then I just use a slotted spoon to scoop all the spinach off and put that on the side of the plate next to the steak. So what I've actually done is I've turned spinach into meat-flavored spinach, which is awesome. <laughs> and uh, and then you just pour the liquid into a gravy boat. And here's the thing. We, we always talk about eat fat to satiety. Yeah. Not everybody's going to want the same amount of fat. So right. the fat is in the sauce. It's yep. in the gravy boat. Yep. So if you're the kind of person who would look at that meal and think, well, that's got, not going to be enough for me, you can add a little bit of that fatty sauce. That's right. If you're the kind of person who says, well, that's going to fill me up nicely, don't add the fatty sauce. Don't add the sauce. That's how you do fat to satiety. You put it in the sauce. The most delicious way to do keto is right here with the dudes. <laughs> <laughs> what a great show. That's awesome, Richard. Of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something you we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, and Instagram at twoketodudes. Make sure to use the hashtag 2KetoDudes. And, of course, if you want to join the free Ketogenic Forum, it's forum.2keto.com. And you can have a look around the Ketogenic Forum without needing to create an account by starting with success.2keto.com. That's our huge success story page. Someday you can add yours to it. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, T-shirts, coffee mugs, and all that other junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear.2keto.com. And if you want a shot at getting some of that swag for free, join the Two Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Go to fanclub.twoketo.com. And if you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts we produce, think about making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.twoketo.com. And come to Keto Fest 2018. We're going to have a party. Go to ketofest.com. Yeah, and you can also see our podcasts and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com and check out my cooking videos at carlsketokitchen.com and if you haven't already go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts that's how new people get to know about what we do Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC who strives to support the low carb community with podcasts and other publications my friend keep calm keto on and fast when you can yeah, Carl, keep calm, keto on, and keto fest in just about two weeks or join the live stream. <laughs> That's right. All right, and we'll see you next time on, on Two, two keto, keto Dudes. dudes.